invite you at this time to turn in your pew Bibles to page 53, where we find our scripture reading this morning, Genesis chapter 33. Pew Bible, page 53. Here now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, What do you mean by all these droves I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, Let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender, and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the droves before me and that of the children until I come to my Lord and see her. Esau said, Then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Sukkoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Sukkoth. After Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds. Of his people. Well, some of you may know about that uh, popular case back in the uh, back in the day, the late '90s, of the Menendez brothers in California. Uh, they were convicted for killing their parents in Beverly Hills, uh, shooting them with a shotgun. Um, the younger brother confessed this to a psychologist, and then the the trial. Boom, went on. And of course, they said they did this because of the many, many years of abuse at the hands of their father, of which their mother did nothing about, and because they said they were fearful for their lives. Nonetheless, they both received life sentences in prison. Well, back in 2018, an unlikely scenario happened. One of the brothers had been 
requesting for some time a transfer to the prison of his other brother. Well, this doesn't happen very often, but it did happen. In 2018, they were both uh, reunited in a San Diego prison and uh, got to spend the rest of their sentence. They've, they're going to spend the rest of their sentence together where they often get to see each other and interact. Um, maybe you're asking, what does this have to do with Jacob and Esau? Well, the truth of the matter is I googled uh, famous reunions of brothers, and that's the first one that came up was the Menendez brothers. But nonetheless, um, we do have a similar unlikely scenario here between Jacob and Esau. You, re- you remember the story, Jacob left his homeland, left his, the father, his father and mother's house because he had tricked Esau out of the blessing. And the last words that he heard that his brother had said was, as soon as I get a chance, I'm going to kill my brother. And so his mother conspired to send him away to uh, her family's place back uh, in Padan Aram. And so Jacob left thinking he'd be gone a short time. But 20 years has passed, many years have passed, of which uh, he worked for Laban. And when he worked for Laban, his father-in-law, his father-in-law treated him poorly. His father-in-law changed his wages many times. It's only because of the, the grace of God that Jacob was able to prosper. Uh, he was tricked into marrying Leah and then Rachel, so he's got two wives, and he's had all these children. And he finally decides he's going to leave, right? And what happens? As he's leaving, Laban comes after him. Laban, it looks like Laban is going to attack him. It looks like Laban is coming with his army. But God warns Laban in a dream to leave him alone. So you have this very uneasy peace that happens between Jacob and Laban. Laban and Jacob basically make this this agreement. I won't go after you if you won't go after me. And so Jacob leaves Padan Aram. He goes into the promised land. As he's entering the promised land, he sends word to his brother Esau. And the, the first thing that he hears is that his brother Esau is coming with 400 fighting men. He's coming with an army to attack him, to kill him. And so what's, what's this got to do? Well, this, this is something that frightens Jacob. He's, he's fearful. He's so afraid that he's gonna, his life is going to be over. He doesn't have any fighting men. He just has his servants, and he has his children, and he has his wives, and he has all of his livestock. That's all he has. And so he separates himself in all these camps, and he does everything that he can. He prays to God as, a, as sort of like a last recourse. God, please, you promised you'd protect me. Please protect me. And then one day, he's, one night, he's all by himself, and he wrestles with God all night long, right? And it comes away with a blessing. But the next morning, he still has to go and face Esau, and he's still afraid for his life. So there's this unlikely reunion between these two brothers. Um, so let's read about that this morning. Our theme, if there's one thing that I want you to take away from our scripture passage this morning, is that it, uh, this, this theme statement, God is faithful to work in us what Christ has purchased for us. God is faithful to work in us what Christ has purchased for us. Now, this is how I'm going to handle this um, scripture passage this morning. I'm going to just sort of quickly go through this story, Genesis chapter 33, uh, in two points. The first 11 verses is an unexpected embrace. Um, The second point is in verses 12 through 20, it's a necessary parting. But then at the end, I'm going to talk about the, uh, the principles which we can take away from this passage. There's probably more but I want to focus on two, two abiding principles, uh, two abiding applications that we can uh, grasp and, and carry away from us from this passage, okay? So let's look at that first point, unexpected embrace. Um, 
there's this tense moment where Jacob is finally going to encounter Esau, right? He's going to encounter his brother whom he thinks is coming to murder him, who thinks is coming to kill him. And so this is what we see. Jacob looks up and there's Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph in the rear. And he himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Um, now, if, um, obviously, you can see that he orders his children um, in, in relation to how much he favors them. Uh, we're going to find out later that Jacob still has an issue with favoritism amongst his children. So uh, if he's uh, fearful that he's going to be attacked, uh, this is what he does. Um, and and my, my advice to any dad out there is please don't do this. All right? He puts the, the maidservants and their children, his least favorite, in the line where they can be killed first, right? And then he puts Leah and his, their, her children in line next. So if, if Esau's coming to kill him, then his least favorite children get killed first. And then his second least favorite children get killed for, uh, second. And then his uh, most favorite, uh, Rachel, the wife he really does love, and Joseph, the one son that she, she's given him, uh, would be killed last. Would be, they would be the furthest from the danger. But we have to give Jacob a little bit of props because he doesn't hide behind Rachel and Joseph at the end of the line, right? He puts himself in front, and he, th- he thinks to himself, I am going to, I'm the man of this household, I am going to be up front, I am going to defend my family. And what he does is he comes up to Esau, and he shows all the, the humility that he can muster to Esau to show that he is not a threat, Right? And he bows down to the ground seven times as he approaches his brother as a, a sign of uh, respect, a sign of humility, a sign of hu- um, being humbled, right? And so you're, you're, if you're reading this, if you saw this in a movie, you'd be thinking, what's going to happen next? How is this encounter going to happen? Is Esau going to come up, pull his sword out, and chop Jacob's head off? Is he going to say, men, get them? Uh, is, what's going to happen, right? But what happens is not what you think is going to happen. It's not what you think is going to happen. It's a plot twist, right? Verse 4, But Esau ran to meet Jacob, embraced him, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. And they wept. And they wept. I mean, that's a beautiful, beautiful part of the story. And, it, and it, this isn't one of the, the abiding principles that we're going to talk about later, but it's something that I do want to mention is that they've been apart for how many years, Jacob and Esau, right? And it is often the case that if you know somebody, but you haven't seen them in many, many years, that the way that you think about them is the way you knew them back then, right? It's the way you remember them being. But... Time changes people. Not always for the better, right? But we can't make assumptions about people that we knew back in the day. Sometimes I think about people that knew me in high school, people that knew me in college. And I say, I sure hope people don't think of me that way still. At least I hope I'm better 
more mature, a different person than I was back then. Jacob, all he could think of was that Esau was the guy who was breathing murder towards him. But what he found out was that Esau had missed him. Embraced him, threw his arms around his neck, kissed him, and they wept. People change. People change. And so then Esau continues a conversation with him. And he says, who are these with you? And Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. And then what we find out is that Jacob, the, what he modeled, the behavior that he modeled in, in showing respect and humility to Esau um, is also what his family models. So the maidservants and their children approach and bow down. Leah and her children come and bow down. Joseph and Rachel, they too come, down, come and bow down before Esau and show him humility, show him respect, right? And Esau asked, what do you mean by all these droves I met? Uh, one of the things that Jacob did was he sent a bunch of presents, gifts, before his, his uh, camp, right? To sort of try to appease Esau if Esau was coming to, to attack him, if Esau was coming to kill him. Um, and so uh, he asked, Esau asked Jacob, why did you do this? Um, and Jacob says, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. Uh, Jacob will refer to Esau as my Lord, as um, someone who is above him, right? Continuing to express that kind of humility. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. But Jacob insists. He says, no, please, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. I'm going to take a moment to, to look at this verse, that Jacob's, this, this thing that Jacob says. He says, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God. What does Jacob mean by that? Well, it's interesting that this comes in correlation to Jacob actually encountering God in his wrestling match. And Jacob actually names that place, and he says, this is the name of the place. Why? Because I have seen God and not died. The scripture says that God is so holy, God is so magnificent, that to see his face, to behold his glory, we would not survive it. And the only way that we can behold the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ a mediated expression of his glory incarnated into a human body, right? But Jacob, he saw the face of God and he survived. Well, what's Jacob's anticipation about this encounter with Esau? He thinks that Esau is coming with these 400 men to strike him dead. He thinks that his encounter of Esau is going to mean his demise, his last day, his last moment, his last breath. But when Esau comes up to him, embraces him, puts his arms around his neck, and they weep together as reunion of, the, of these brothers, they weep together. It, it, it's like Jacob thought he would die, but he lived. Seeing your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Right? That's really what grace is, isn't it? Grace is an unexpected receiving of what you do not deserve. 
And so to go before God, we believe that we deserve to be struck down. We deserve to be judged, right? But we aren't because of Christ Jesus and we receive mercy. Instead, we receive grace. So it's like seeing the face of God now that we have been received favorably. And so Jacob insists that Esau receive this present, right? And the second part of this story is about a necessary parting. A necessary parting. Verse 12 through 20. Esau then says to Jacob, let's be on our way, I'll accompany you. And so he assumes that Jacob has returned to this area um, and they're going to uh, settle together. They're going to stay together at least for a time for a visit, right? But Jacob told him that the Lord knows that uh, the people that are with me are slow because I've got children and women. That's basically what he says. I got children, I got women, I got livestock. I got to be moving slower than you with the 400 men. That's, that's the reality. And so he says, go on ahead and I will follow after you. But then Esau says, but you have nobody to protect you. So let me keep some of my men with you to protect you, to watch over you. Um, but Jacob insists, don't do that. Just, just now that I've been found favor in your eyes, just go on ahead, right? And so that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. But Jacob, we never read that he followed up on his promise that he would go to see Esau in Seir. He went and he settled in Sukkoth, where he built a, a temporary dwelling place for him, and he made shelters for his livestock. And that's why the place is called Sukkoth. Sukkoth is, is the Hebrew word for shelters, for, ta- for um, um, booths. It sounds very similar to the word for booths. I um, mean, you know about this later on when the people are going through the wilderness They'll have the festival of booths to remind themselves of the temporary time in which they lived uh, as wanderers uh, in, in the wilderness. But after this, Jacob came from, this is a sort of a summary statement here at the end. Jacob came from Badan Aram, arrived safely at the city of Shechem and Canaan, camped within sight of the city. He bought some land from the, uh, the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Um, and that's where he pitched his tent. And there, when he pit, where he pitched his tent, he set up an altar and he called it El Elohe Israel. Um, so what we find out is that Jacob, in a very real sense, sort of like Abraham and Lot earlier in the story, in a very real sense, realized they cannot be one camp. They have to be separate camps because there are too many people. There's too much to handle there. But also, in a very real sense, to show us once again, of God's election, God's choice. Jacob is the one who's going to receive the covenant promises. Esau is not. These camps cannot mingle together. They have to be distinguished from each other because Jacob is the line of promise, the one in which the Messiah will come from, okay? So we've got an unexpected embrace. Jacob and Esau reunite, and we did not think it was going to be like that, happen like that. But we also have a necessary parting. They end up uh, settling in different places. They don't settle together, right? Um, let's finally talk about these two ab- abiding principles. The first one I want to talk about is the principle of peace. Before uh, Genesis chapter 3, you read Genesis 2 and you get the sense of what we call in the Hebrew shalom. Everything is as it should be in the world. There is no animosity between people and God, and there is no animosity between man and woman, or human and human. There is peace, shalom, wholeness. 
Everything is as it should be in creation. Everything is as it should be, right? But the moment in which the woman believes the lie of the serpent and eats from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and gives to her husband and he eats, we see that immediate reaction, right? The brokenness between mankind and God. They're hiding. Why are they hiding? Because they feel ashamed that they're naked. They are hiding because they've now broken their union, their communion from God. They've done something God has said you shall not do, right? And then God shows up and he says, what's happened? He comes to the man and he says, what's happened? And what does the man say? It's the woman. It's the woman that you made and had live with me. She's the one that's at fault. And then he turns to the woman and she says, what? It's the serpent, right? The blame game begins. And you see, this happened not only immediately after the fall in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, but as we studied Genesis, you remember that the first brothers, Cain and Abel, the first brothers that were ever born, Cain murders his brother Abel out of jealousy. Because Abel's sacrifices were accepted and Cain's were not. So there is this animosity, there is this feud, there is this tension, there is this lack of peace. And if we wanted to talk about it in a deeper theological sense, we could say this is about the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, right? This is about those who are chosen in Christ and those who are in Adam. We are all fallen in Adam. We are all broken. We are all distorted. Our relationships are shattered. We've lost peace. But you see a taste of the reversal of that in the reunion between Jacob and Esau. You see in the reunion between Jacob and Esau the way the life is meant to be. The shalom, the peace that we are called to have. The peace that we were given by God that we wrecked, we shattered by our own choice. The wholeness and the communion, right? We see a snippet of it. We see a little bit of it, a taste of it. And one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 133. And many of you probably know it. You've sung it before. It says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. But that peace which we see a taste of in the reunion between Jacob and Esau, where there should have been animosity, there should have been a desire to bring vengeance, right? Yet there is this peaceful reunion. There is this moment uh, of loving embrace. It's a moment that, in a very real sense, reminds me of the father running up to the parable son, right? And the, and the, prodigal, or the prodigal son, not the parable son. The prodigal son, right? That is a peace which is impossible outside of Christ. It's a peace that's purchased by Jesus Christ. And it's a peace which he is working in us and through our lives. 
as we take responsibility for our own actions, as we repent of our sins, as we seek and desire to live in unity and communion with one another. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this principle of peace purchased by Jesus Christ in relation to the division between the ethnicities of Jew and Gentile, right? This is what Ephesians chapter 2 says. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. This is a peace purchased by Christ. This is a peace in which Christ prayed that we would know in John chapter 17 when he said, Lord, I pray that they would know that they are mine. The world would know that they are mine because they love one another. They love one another. In a war-torn world, when you turn on the TV station and all you hear is about the fearful things going on between Ukraine and Russia and how that might affect the rest of the world. In fact, it might affect you very directly when you go to the gas station and you want to fill up your tank and you're realizing that it's gonna, you know, you're going to have to take out a small loan or something. When you hear about all these wars and rumors of wars, when you hear about all these tensions between people and all these tensions in our own families, in our own lives, in the way that we no longer get along with so-and-so, we no longer get along with so-and-so, right? These are all things which Christ has purchased peace for. There is no peace without Christ. And the reason why all these tumultuous things are happening is because these people are trying to create peace on their own terms instead of realizing that the, the blood price has already been purchased. They're trying to shed blood to bring peace when the blood of Jesus Christ has already been shed. They're trying to break down the dividing wall of hostility by going to war when the dividing wall of hostility has already been broken down in Jesus Christ. If all of humanity would look to Christ and say, the bloodshed can end because the blood has already been shed, we would have peace. And let me tell you, this is where it begins. It begins in your very own heart. It begins when you look at the man in the mirror. Or the woman. And you say, Christ, you've purchased peace for me today, and I'm going to live out peace. I'm going to live out shalom in my life. What about the second principle? The second principle, the second abiding principle, is the principle of perseverance. If you know that in the last story, when Jacob wrestled that man, when he wrestled God, and he said, I will not let you go until you give me a blessing, the blessing that God gave Jacob was a new name. 
Your name will be Israel. Well, if you know in the story of Genesis already, already, there's been some name changes. Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, right? And these name changes, in a literal sense, became permanent. Because at that point on in the narrative, these people were only referred to in their new name. But you'll see that in the continuation of the biblical narrative, Jacob will maybe be referred to as both Israel and Jacob continually. And I believe that sort of gives us um, an example, gives us a, a bit of a, a symbol, you could say, of the continued struggle against sin that we have seen played out in Jacob's life up to this point. When Paul talks about the struggle against sin in Romans chapter 7. He says, who will save me from this body? I, I, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I do want to do, I don't do. I probably didn't even say it right because it's hard to say that right, right? But he's talking about this struggle against sin in the Christian life. And what Jacob's story kind of tells us is that sometimes in the Christian life, we're still our old selves. And sometimes we're our new selves. Sometimes we're Jacob and sometimes we're Israel, if you see what I'm saying. And so in this very story, in Genesis chapter 33, we see both of those realities at play. Um, I don't think it's beneficial for us to just, just look at Genesis 33 in the transformative sense and to say these are the ways that Jacob has changed. But to also look at it and say these are the ways that Jacob is still unchanged. Because the reality is we do have transformation in our lives, but it's much like the transformation uh, that uh, as parents we see when our kids are growing, right? I'm always shocked by the fact that um, I see my kids every day, right? But some of my family, they don't see them every day. And so when they see them again, they go, wow, they've grown so much, right? And that's how our transformation oftentimes in the Christian life is. There's dips and there's, there's ups and downs, and, and, but, but there's this steady, there's this gradual incline, right? So it's encouraging, I think, to us to, uh, to see that even though God um, has given Jacob a new name, that there is this continual struggle against sin um, because it's the theme that I want us to know. God is faithful to work in us what Christ has purchased for us. Jacob is on a journey of growth in his faith. And this, Genesis chapter 33, continues to show us that. So here are some ways that Jacob seems unchanged in this story, right? The first is Jacob is still seeking to secure his own safety by making Esau take his gifts. Now, in one sense, you could say Jacob's transformation is expressed in the fact that he shows uh, that God is the one who has blessed him. And so he wants Jacob to take, or he wants Esau to take these gifts, right? Um, but in other sense, too, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, somebody who accepts a gift, from, a gift from you can now no longer be your enemy. That would be sort of like a deep betrayal. And so Jacob insists, you could say that Jacob insists on Esau taking his gifts because that secures him in a place of favor before Jacob. Um, right? The second way that we see that Jacob is unchanged is that he's exhibiting favoritism in the ordering of his wives and children. Now, later on in this narrative, we'll find that Jacob's favoritism, particularly towards his son, son Joseph, who has the Technicolor dream coat, right? The Technicolor, right? Um, is what turns Jacob's other sons against Joseph, right? But Jacob has this deep-seated favoritism um, that's uh, not appropriate. It's not okay. 
Uh, the third way that we see Jacob is unchanged is Jacob lies to Esau about following him to Seir, whether it's out of fear that if he were to go to where Esau was, where he lived, he would be in a vulnerable situation or circumstance. We don't really know, but we see that Jacob says, I will follow after you, but we're not told that he ever does. And so he lies to, to, to Esau to sort of uh, deceive Esau to get him to go on his way, right? And the fourth is that Jacob chooses to settle in Sukkoth and Shechem rather than in Bethel. If you remember the story, um, Jacob was in Bethel and he saw the dream of the ladder, right? And Jacob said that I will return to this place and I will set up an altar here and I will set up camp here. Well, Jacob doesn't do that. He takes another path, right? So those are some ways that we could say that Jacob is still unchanged. He's still struggling with his sin nature, right? But here's some ways that we see Jacob has changed. The first I've already mentioned, he's, he puts himself in the front, willing to die for his family, willing to be in between, be the person who's mediating the danger of Esau from the rest of his family. The second is that he attributes the success, wealth, and family he has gained, not to his own ability, but as a gift of God's grace in multiple occasions. Esau says, who are these with you? Jacob answers, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. And then later Esau says, I already have plenty. Keep this for yourself. And, she, and, and Jacob responds, um, please accept the present that was brought to you for God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. Um, another way that we see Jacob has changed is that he purchases land as an expression of faith in the covenant promise. This is something that we see in, in the book of Genesis throughout is that they, uh, these uh, forefathers, these patriarchs, will purchase land in the, in the land of Canaan because they've been promised that this land will one day be theirs. So there's sort of a, uh, a flag that they're placing in the ground saying, I believe in this promise. I believe that this is a seed of what will come later, that we will have this whole land given to us by God. And then the fourth is probably the most significant uh, way that we can see that Jacob truly has continued to grow in his faith transformed and, and, and seeking to be changed um, by his faith in God is this. He builds an altar where his family can worship and he names it El Elohe Israel. Now up until this point in the Jacob narrative, he has referenced Yahweh, the covenant God, multiple times. And every time that he has referenced Yahweh, the covenant God, he has said, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, right? He's always referenced God in relation to his great-grandpa or his grandpa and his dad. That is my grandpa's God and that is my dad's God, right? But here in this moment, as this story closes out, he says, I will call this altar El Elohe Israel. What's that mean? It means God, the God of Israel. My God. Not only the God of Abraham and Isaac, but also the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. That's what I'm saying. This is my God. I claim Yahweh, the God, as my God because he has kept his promises. Because when he was in Bethel, and God 
appeared to him, what did God say? God said, I will protect you. I will bring you back to this place. I will watch over you. And God has kept his promise. And so Jacob expresses his faith by taking ownership, by placing himself in a profession of faith in the covenant. This is the God of Israel. My God, my family's God. And this principle of perseverance is a statement about this is that we need to remember that salvation is a process. And seeing our forefathers develop in this way encourages us. It shows us that we're not different. It shows us that we are in continual need of the grace God has provided for us in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of his son, Jesus Christ. We don't reference our forefathers in this glorious limelight where there's nothing wrong with them. We see that in very real ways, they're still sinners. They're still broken. But in also very real ways, God is working the grace that he has purchased in Jesus Christ into their lives. And that encourages us because we're in the same place. We still struggle with sin, but God is faithful to work in us what he has purchased for us in Christ Jesus. Lord Day, Lord's Day 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism talks about this in reference to the 10th commandment. This is what Lord's Day 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism says. What is God's will for us in the 10th commandment? That not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in my heart. Rather, with all my heart, I should always hate sin and take pleasure in whatever is right. Reminder, the Ten Commandment is, thou shalt not covet, right? Um, Question 114 says, but can those converted to God obey these commandments perfectly in relation to all the commandments? The answer is no. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. And question 115 says, No one in this life can obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. Why then does God want them preached so pointedly? And this is the answer. First, so that the longer we live the more we we may come to know our sinfulness and the more eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. That's what Jacob is doing in his life. He is pursuing Whatever it may seem, ever so slightly, growth in his Christian life, in his life of faith. And that's what God has called us to do as well, and God is faithful. He is faithful to work in us what Christ has purchased for us. So my prayer is that he would work in you the peace which Christ purchased for us, that you may love one another deeply. My prayer is that he would work in you faith and trust in tumultuous times that he has purchased for you in Christ Jesus. May you know um, how great a salvation that you have. Not only that you've been forgiven of all your sins, but also that you've been given a perfect righteousness 
Not only that God has saved you, present tense, but that God is continuing to save you, to renew you into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Just like our forefathers, and just like we're called to today. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this word that we've got this morning. Thank you that you are faithful to work in us what your Son, Christ, has purchased for us. Lord, may we continue to surrender to you all the sin that we still struggle with, and may we, Lord, let you work in our hearts through your Spirit to change us and transform us into the image of your Son, who is the perfect image of God, the perfect representation of your nature. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.